we can never complain about getting too much Bible, can you? Uh, it's, uh, it's great to hear the Word of God, uh, particularly since uh, next week we're looking at being hungry for God's Word, uh, but that's not what we're looking at today. Uh, back in the 1990s, have you got the clicker there, Adam? Oh, I've got it here. Uh, there was an amazing phenomenon that swept right through the Western church, US, Australia, England, oh, I'm sure it hit New Zealand even. Uh, it, it was these. Anyone remember these? WWJD armbands. Uh, what would Jesus do? Almost overnight, millions of people were wearing them and then came the T-shirts, the caps, the other bling as well. Uh, I'd only recently become a Christian and uh, everyone in youth group and church, was, oh, I went out and bought one and yeah, proudly wore it for about two weeks. <laughs> um, WWJD, as Aaron has said, what would Jesus do? Uh, it was meant to remind you to stop and think about what you're about to say or what you're about to do or about the big decision you're about to come to. Just ask yourself, what would Jesus do? What would he act? How would he act? What would he say? What would he decide? Uh, WWJD. And it had a certain appeal to it. Uh, okay, what would Jesus do? I want to live like Jesus. Um, but a few problems started arising pretty quickly with them. The first one was that no one could really agree what Jesus would do in most life situations. I mean, it's kind of difficult because he's God, become a man. And so in some ways, you know, he's a good example. But in others, I mean, you know, what would Jesus do if he came across a sick person? He wouldn't just pray for them and care, cuddle them or stay away from them. with a Like, he would just heal them with the power of God, right? Um, and the big question was, what did Jesus come to do? Well, he came to bear the wrath of God for the sins of the whole world upon himself and then conquer death. You try doing that one. Uh, uh, second issue is it really just became another fad that was about the bling, a way of showing off that you were part of the in crowd. I'm a WJD kind of person. It's Christian insider wear to show off your cool, uh, which is the exact opposite of what it's meant to be, what the message is, isn't it? And finally, they became so trendy that Christian bookstores started reporting that WWJD armbands were the most stolen item in their inventory. Normally, any other year, current year, it's Bibles. That's the most stolen thing from Kurong. Uh, go figure that. <laughs> if there's one thing Jesus wouldn't have done, it's nick some bracelets. <laughs> Today, we're talking about being hungry for God's life? Do you long for, do you yearn for, is it your ambition to live a life that's holy and pleasing to God? Now last week I hope you came away hungry for God's glory, wanting him to be the one who gets all the glory and honour and power which he totally deserves. Uh, I want to say if you missed that one, go back and watch it online or get me to print you out a copy because it really is the foundation for everything else we're going to say in this little series. But it's also the foundation for everything we do and decide as a church. It's all for God's glory. But today we're going to start to drill down on, on what being hungry for God's glory looks like. If you want to put that into practice, then a passion, a yearning for God to be glorified ought to mean that we hunger 
for God's life, that we long to please God in everything we do, in everything we say, that God's ways might grip us, that we might yearn to be moulded and shaped, that his glorious character that we saw last week of grace and truth might start to overflow in us, that we ache to, well, be holy as the Lord our God is holy. Now, I hope it comes as no surprise that God calls us as his children to be different to the rest of the world. Uh, anyone is surprised by that, right? That we're not to be like the rest of the world that doesn't know God. Uh, think how many times he says in scriptures things like 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, uh, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all of your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. I mean, he's quoting there from multiple places in the Old Testament there. Be holy because I am holy, says God. Now, holiness is an interesting word. Uh, I, I guess like WWJD, we sort of intuitively know what it means. But you go to pin it down and define it and it's kind of hard to capture exactly what, what does it mean. What is holiness? Uh, you might say, lots of people say, well, it's moral purity, right? It's not sinning, it's, it's being nice. Um, but you read the Old Testament and you see that there are all sorts of inanimate objects that are holy, right? The, the cups and vessels in the temple, the altar, the, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, they're not moral at all, right? You didn't decide to be a nice cup today or a, it, it just, it's a cup. Um, and so moral purity doesn't really capture it entirely, um, so some people come back, well, so no, 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 well, holiness is about God's transcendence. God is other, right? He, he's outside of our realm, and, and that's true. And, and holiness does kind of capture some of that, but, but then what would it mean for us to be holy as God is holy? You know, we, do we have to ascend as the mystics think that we can into pure energy that you can, if you do it right, the meditation right, transcend your body and come outside of it and become just pure energy is so that doesn't kind of make sense either at heart i think what holy means as the that kind of captures it all is to be set apart set apart set apart for god's purposes set apart for his glory god is holy in that he is set apart from this world he is transcendent he's but he's set apart for his own purposes he's transcendent and glorious as the creator of this world who deserves all the praise and glory as we've seen but it also explains why even the the inanimate objects like the ark of the covenant and the priest's robes could be holy because they were set apart for god's purposes you couldn't use them for anything else on pain of death you wouldn't the high priest didn't go you know what it's fancy dress party this week i'm going to go dressed up in my gear right no it's set apart for god's it's to be used for this purpose and this purpose only it wasn't that they carried some sort of magical properties or power in themselves, which you might get the impression from watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, that the Ark had this power. In. No, it's not in and of itself. It's that it's specially made for a purpose by God. And he is jealous for that purpose and in good sense that these things are his and for his purposes and they're not to be used for other purposes. You, know, you think of the man who's jealous for his wife, right? It's a good thing set apart and in the same way when god saves people from their sins 
He calls into a life that is set apart for him and his purposes and his pleasure. And he is jealous for us. We are his. God is jealous for you. Peter is going to go on and say just a little bit later in chapter 3, verse 15, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. The set apart word is treat him as holy in, in Greek. It's, it's holify him as Lord. <laughs> like you can't translate that as an English word. It doesn't make any sense, but it's so set apart, Christ as Lord. Notice that it's, in, it's a heart thing. This isn't about box ticking. It's not about wearing Christian branded outfits. It's not even just about a grudging obedience to God. We're not kowtowing to a wicked master out of primal fear that we'll be whipped and beaten if we put one toe over the line, right? It comes from a genuine heart, a passion, a love for God. And what are we to do with our hearts in here, in our wills, in our being? We are to set apart Christ as Lord. We are to think of him, love him, treat him as he is, the great master the great king, the one who bought you with his blood and has conquered death and now reigns in glory. He is in charge and Peter is calling us to love that fact and to submit ourselves to him. You think how Paul, that was Peter, think how Paul talks in that wonderful passage in Romans chapter 12 that we just read. Uh, it's about a life that's hungry for God. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing and the perfect will of God. Now, we could spend... Well, I could spend hours unpacking now, but just a couple of minutes. What, what is this incredible passage? Notice a few things about it. Notice that the reason to hunger for God's life, well, why? It's in view of God's mercies. That is to say, the reason to live God's way, to be holy as God is holy, to set apart Christ as Lord, is not to save ourselves. Right? It's because we've already been saved by God, by Jesus. Right? We, God has lavished his mercy on us and he's given us new life. His mercy coming to save us, his mercy in sending Jesus to the cross, his mercy in uh, giving us his spirit to dwell with us, his mercy in providing for us each day, his mercy in, in giving us the sure hope of being with him forever. In view of these mercies, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. But notice also the image that he uses there. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice. It is very weird in the history of the world to think of any sort of religious sacrifice that ever lives through the experience <laughs> Uh, you think of the Incas, the Aztecs, the, uh, even ancient Israel, whoever, what, what do you, well, the one thing you know about sacrifices is they're dead meat, uh, literally, afterwards, right? Uh, cut, 
guts poured out, blood spilled everywhere, and then often burned. So, right, living sacrifice is a weird idea, but it's a, it's a brilliantly vivid way of describing a life that's devoted to God. A life of true worship, as he says, this is your true worship. Worship is where you offer yourself to God and say, here I am, what do you want me to do? Right, worship is not the song time in church, although you can worship during that, but worship is all of life. It's, God, I'm yours. What do you want with me today? What do you want with me tomorrow? What do you want for me next year? And God willing, in 30, 40 years, 50 years time, what what will you want from me? How can my every moment bring joy and pleasure to you because I'm yours? It's the difference between bacon and eggs. You think I've gone mad, right? <laughs> What's the difference between eggs and bacon? Well, the difference is the chickens involved, the pigs committed. You've got to think about it. The chickens involved, the difference between eggs and bacon is that the chicken is involved, but the pig is fully committed. You've got to think about it. The pig's all in, right? Chicken just makes a token contribution. <laughs> That's what he's calling us to, a full commitment, 24-7, 360 degrees. Notice that it's about bringing pleasure to God. God saved you. He brought you. He adopted you to bring him enjoyment, right? Puppies might make Trudy's heart sing, uh, Uh, You may think of yourself as small, as a drop in the great ocean of humanity or just a blip in the great sweep of history, but to God, you are an incredible being who he made and who he has saved to find joy in you. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. You can please God. He wants your life to bring him pleasure. And like last week, we saw that That's not at the expense of our joy and satisfaction. It's actually what's going to bring us joy and satisfaction because you'll be living out your purpose, the purpose for which God made you. You'll be like a train on the tracks, running freely, living for his pleasure. Now, we we got a glimpse of that last week in Psalm 37 and verse 4. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. And we thought about what that didn't mean and what it does mean. But you, you know, take the line of God. He'll give you your heart's desires because you'll love him and he'll give you himself. He'll give you all of the things of himself. But let me show it to you from the Sermon on the Mount, which was read for us in Matthew chapter 5 uh, and see it there. Uh, Jesus uh, had, hadn't been on the scene for very long. Uh, thousands and thousands of people were flocking to him uh, and they were all hungry for something but it wasn't God's glory and it wasn't God's life. What were the people coming to Jesus from interstate, internationally, on foot and camel and donkey wanting? To see some miracles, right? To have their friend healed or to be healed themselves or just see the show. They were hungry for that, we're told, in chapter 4. That's why they've come. But Jesus sits everyone down, launches into a sermon which starts with what our Bible translators have titled, the titles aren't part of the Bible, by the way, just uh, aside, but they put the title here, The Beatitudes. 
which is really weird because it's not even an English word. That's Latin. Right? Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a strange word that just means blessings. I don't know why he, they couldn't put the blessings because that's what he says. Um, this is who God's blessings are for. Here are the lucky ones, the fortunate ones, the ones who have God's favour. But you read it and it's a weird looking list. Right? Do you think these are the fortunate ones? Uh, the, the poor in spirit. Right? The ones who know that they have nothing to offer God. That's what he means by poor in spirit. They can't earn their way to God. They know that. They, need, they know they need to call out to God. They're, they're the blessed ones. Right? The kingdom of heaven is theirs, he says. Blessed are the mourners. And he doesn't just mean you've lost someone. He means those who mourn over their own sin and the nation's sin. But he says, blessed are they for they will be comforted. But notice the next one in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. In one sense, that's where we got this whole idea of hungry from. Blessed are those who long for, yearn for, ache for, itch for, desire to live out God's ways, hungering for his life, loving what he wants. Blessed are they, why? For they will be filled. Living for God isn't a life of joylessness and frustration serving a monster. It's a life of blessing that will leave you filled to overflowing. And actually, that's part of the amazing thing about the grace of God in the gospel, which is a demonstration of the glory of God, as we saw last week, that that you start to realise that the old way without God at the centre of your life is actually pretty hopeless. It, and empty, that it won't satisfy, it's doomed to disappointment. And when he saves you, God gives you a new heart, a, a heart where you long for better, where you long to see him honoured, where, where the fog lifts and you can see the goodness of his ways and it starts to shape every part of your life. It's an ongoing process, it's not going to be complete in this life. Right? You, you cannot get to perfect holiness now. Um, but, but it's what you will strive for and long for. And he goes on to say that everyone will see the difference. It might not be complete in this life, but everyone is going to see the difference now. And that's the point of the bit about the salt and the light. You'll stand out as different. And if you're not different, then really have you received the grace and truth of God? Jesus says, uh, not there, Uh, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. It gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. It's so different, isn't it, to the world, which lives for its own praise and honour and glory. I play indoor soccer still. It's getting to the point of being slightly embarrassing (laughs) for the rest of the team. We're all 
20-year-olds. <laughs> um, uh, I played at Sydney Uni. In, in They've extended the sports complex. Uh, it's the Aquatic Centre, which is a weird place to play soccer, but anyway. Uh, but as you walk into the new wing where the, the soccer courts are, it's indoors, um, there is a huge billboard above the stairs that's never going anywhere. As you're about to walk down in, you cannot help but see, because you're at eye level as you walk in, uh, the sign displaying the names of everyone who has donated to the project anything over $1,000. Um, it's listed in categories, actually. Uh, here's the people that gave 1000 to $5,000. Here's the people that gave 5000 to 10000 Here's the 10000 plus. Here's the 100000 Here's the million plus. Two names on that one. All right. Uh, They've done something nice for the community, for sure. I'm very glad it's there. But who gets the praise for it? They do. But we do stuff not so that they'll praise us, but so they'll praise our great God. After all, any goodness in me at all is all of his work. It's all his grace. And so all the honour should go to him. Is that what you want? Is that your life? Saved by God's grace, we come to him with nothing in our hands but saved for a life that's holy and pleasing to God. A, a life lived to put a smile, if you like, on God's face. Well, I want to think just for a little while about how that would play out. What would it look like to, to be hungry for God's life? If you want to live a life that's holy and pleasing to God, what, what makes God smile? Uh, and you'll see there on the outline, there's, there's five things we're going to go through really, really quickly. Five ways to make God smile. Uh, you might notice as we go through, there's a typo in one of them, which ma makes it sound totally different to what it should say. Anyway, you'll figure that as we go. <laughs> it might sound corny, but he is our father and he delights in his children. When we see something that brings us pleasure, that's what we do, isn't it? We smile. So what makes God smile? Here's five ways. One, God smiles when we love him supremely. I think what the greatest commandment that God ever gave was. We, we read it at the start of the service, didn't we? Surely if you hunger for God's life, that would be a pretty good place to start. The number one commandment. Uh, someone asked Jesus that very question and he said... The most important one, listen Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbour as yourself. Do you cherish God? Is he worth more to you than anything or anyone else? You might, what does it look like? Think of Noah. Noah loved God more than anything else in this world, even when no one else did. He's described in Genesis 6 as the one who found favour with God. I take it as he makes God smile. And he walked with God. He had this close relationship with God. And so that when everyone else was partying and drinking and carousing, he said, no, I want to live God's life. I want to be about his business. 
he hungered and thirsted for God's righteousness because he loved God. But then you think of someone else who stands in complete contrast to Noah, uh, the rich young ruler. Remember him? He came and asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit life, eternal life? Now, that is a very odd question to ask when you stop and think about it. It's odd for a couple of reasons. One, because Jesus just answered it the second before in his hearing. But anyway, we'll leave that one. Maybe he was watching a cloud pass by. Um, But think about the question, right? What must I do to inherit it? You know anything at all about inheritances? What do you do to get them? You... You, you don't do anything. You wait. <laughs> you, uh, the one thing you can do to spend out the process will mean that you won't inherit at all. That is, bump off your parents. You'll be arrested for that, right? You, and you can't inherit from Christ. Anyway, so, so it's a strange question to begin with. But Jesus answers anyway, I think, you know, humours him, uh, with a challenge about what true goodness would look like. Surely you know the commands of God. And the man says, well, I... I I've kept all of them. Well, I really? Well, <laughs> let's see about that. And, and Jesus challenges him at that point about his greatest love. That'll tell you about his heart. When Jesus heard this, he sold him. You still lack one thing. Set all that you have and distribute all, give it all to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. After he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. He couldn't do it. Why not? Because he loved something more than God. So much so that he wouldn't give it up, even if it meant he got all of God and all of the kingdom and all of the blessings. Loving God supremely means cherishing God above every other thing and even abandoning them if God calls you to do it. It's not saying he is calling you to do it necessarily, but if he did, you would give it up in a heartbeat. You'd give it up if you found them taking over God's place in your life because they're a distraction. What's most important to you? God's got to be on top. What makes God smile? Love him supremely. What makes God smile? Secondly, God smiles when we trust him completely. You come back to Noah. Noah not only loved God, right, but he didn't sit around singing nice campfire songs about God while God's telling him to get on with stuff. No, he trusted him completely so that when God said, build a boat and go get all the animals, the flood's coming, Noah didn't doubt God. He trusted God was going to do that and he got on with it. And so Hebrews 11 lists Noah amongst the great heroes of faith. There's a great list of the heroes of faith, people who took God at his word, who trusted what he said. By faith, Noah, after he was uh, warned about uh, what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You may remember Abraham. Abraham's called the father of faith. Uh, He trusted God completely. God said, up and leave your home, go to that land over there, I'm going to give it to you. He said, all right. In fact, 
his faith was what was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't earn righteousness. He was a bit of a, a stinker, a very messed up life when you read it. Did some shonky stuff, but he trusted God completely. The letter of James goes on to tell us that because of that trust, Abraham in that last sentence was called God's friend. The scripture was fulfilled. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. His point is that when we trust God's promises in the gospel, we count as God's friends. God enjoys his friends. Three, God smiles when we obey him wholeheartedly. Part of trusting God completely is trusting that he knows what he's talking about and what's best for you when he instructs you on how to live a life that pleases him. The, the Bible's full of instructions, isn't it, of how to live God's way. Uh, Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount to give example after example. You've heard it said, don't murder, I'm telling you, don't even hate, right? If you've got a problem with your neighbour, go sort it out with them, right? Last, he deals with lies, pride, materialism, not being judgmental. Romans 12 goes on after the bit we were going to read to, well, we heard the rest of it. <laughs> Just a great list of things that God's telling us about his, the life he wants us to lead. Holy and pleasing to God. Hospitality, serving, forgiving, obeying the government, paying your taxes, he goes on. God's not interested in token assent that you love him and trust him with a few religious gestures. And God doesn't just want a part of our lives. He doesn't want the bits that are convenient for us. Imagine your life is like a house. Uh, there's a floor plan of a house. I'm not sure if that's a good floor plan or not. Uh, but just imagine your life is like that. Every part of your life has a room. Uh, there's, there's a workspace. There's the office. Right? There's, there's the family room. There's the bedroom. Uh, th there's a room for your hobbies. Right? It's, in my case, it's in the middle of the house. Uh, <laughs> the, the games room, other people's the shed. You know. there, there, there's guest rooms, right? The people in your life. You, there, there's, there's entertaining areas for your friends. When Jesus knocks on the door and in, you invite him in, he doesn't want to stand in the foyer. He doesn't want to be shoved into a spare room. He's come in to take over the whole house. This is his place now. God smiles fourthly when we're not intimidated by the world. God warns us over and over again as his people that we're going to face opposition as his people. 2 Timothy 3, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not, it's not maybe, they will be. You will be persecuted if you want to live for Christ. Uh, John, uh, Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 15, but, but we are not to be intimidated. Instead, what are we to do? Count it as a joy and a privilege. Jesus in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount goes on to say, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are you. You are blessed when they insult you, persecute you and say, falsely every kind of evil against you because of me be glad and rejoice luke even says leap for joy i don't know if you've ever tried it you know someone's inside of me woohoo <laughs> i gotta get up there um 
because your reward is great in heaven. Five, God smiles when we praise and thank him continually. I think few things feel better than when we received heartfelt praise and appreciation. Do they? And God loves it too. He smiles when we express our adoration and gratitude to him. In fact, lots of Christians want to know, what, what is God's will for my life? If I could just know that, I'd, be, I'd know what to do. What's God's will for my life? What does God want from you? Well, here it is. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, right? You want to know God's will for your life? That's it. It's not that hard. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in everything. Again, Hebrews 13. Therefore, through Jesus, that's the hymn, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is uh, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Oh, we're just on about Jesus. We're thankful to him. We praise him to other people. Or the purpose that God created the church, why he is building his church in the world, why he's building this church here. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his wonderful, marvellous light. God smiles when we love him supremely. God smiles when we trust him completely. God smiles when we obey him wholeheartedly. God smiles when we're not intimidated by the world. Shouldn't be word as written on the outline as world. God smiles when we praise and thank him continually. That is the life to hunger for. God's life. A new life which is challenging because it's so against the grain but a new life which is full of life, light and joy as we're redirected towards the one who life is really all about anyway. And he delights in us, delighting in him. You can wear WWJD armbands if you like. But God's not really interested in the bling, in the outward appearance of being a Christian. He wants your heart and your whole life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Are you hungry for God's life? Father, these are challenging words. They're so against what we have grown up with, the air we breathe of, of hungering for our own life and our own praise and, and, and everything to go our way. We pray that we'd hunger for your life. Please keep shaping us, remoulding us. Help us to keep putting to death the sins we know displease you and, and putting on the character that pleases you of forgiving others and, and uh, not living in hate and bitterness and lies. But help us to please you in everything. Help us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing God. Not so that we'll be saved because Jesus has done all the work, but because of your great mercy. Please give us this mercy of seeing how this life is the life to live, the only one that's going to bring joy to us as it brings joy to you. Amen.